Now, it's time for the Cybersecurity News Bite with Jim Guckin. Cybersecurity News Bite, episode number 57. For May 22nd, 2023, cybersecurity firm Dragos discloses security incident and extortion attempt. We talk about Darkbird, brute print, the vulnerability to brute force fingerprint locks, and voice cloning as a service. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cybersecurity News Byte. I am your host, Jim Guckin, and I'm just going to say at the very beginning of this that I am stoked for the questions or for the, the stories that we have available this week, uh, mostly because I think they're really good um, stories. And usually I have one or two of them I, I, I like every week. This is just one of those ones where almost all of them are very interesting topics. And I'm going to have to try to keep myself within the time frame of the show. Uh, otherwise, I could do a whole two-hour speech on some of these things. And that just that doesn't make for a very great podcast. I mean, you just listen to me blabber on for two hours. Um, but I will, I will get to the first news story, which uh, happens to do with the cybersecurity firm Dragos. They had themselves a little security incident, and... We've talked many times on the show about how to handle a cybersecurity incident. What's the good things to do? What are the bad things to do? Usually bad things are you just don't communicate anything or you say incorrect things out there. Uh, Dragos did something that I just love from a security standpoint. One, they they admitted to it right off the bat. Like, look, we had this. This is what was accessed. Not a big deal. And two, they use this, probably because they are a cybersecurity company, they use this as a great tool to sit there and say, hey, here's what we learned. Here's the here's the path of the incident from start to finish. And here's what they tried to access. Here's what they did. Here's the IOCs. And they made it all publicly available. And I've talked many times on this show that I understand businesses, when you get hit, you don't want to do this. You, 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 your natural instinct is to kind of uh, close your eyes, cover your ears, and hope it all goes away. Um, but they did the opposite. They said, hey, here's what we learned and you know all the information you need to use this to protect yourself. So from that standpoint, it, it, it was amazing when someone put this article in front of me. Um, so, as I said, Dragos is a uh, is a cybersecurity company. They deal with uh, industrial systems. Uh, they had an incident back in May 10th. Uh, and they said, hey, look, we were the victim of a cybersecurity incident. Now, they know who did it, though a lot of the articles I read didn't quite uh, attribute uh, the group. Uh, they tried, they, they originally got access to the system and then they tried to extort them. So now Dragos comes out and says, look, no systems were really heavily breached that are outside of the normal. Their Dragos platform was not compromised in this. They said the group only gained access, um, via compromising a personal email address. Once again, probably a phishing campaign. Uh, they got a personal email address of a new sales employee. 
So this is before this person even started. Like mo most of you, if you've had a job, are familiar with this. They do business with your personal email because you're not a full member of the company yet, so you don't get a company email. So the hacking group gained access to this person's personal email prior to their start date and then used information to impersonate the employee, finish all of the onboarding steps, and get access to their account. Um, now, the attackers, when they got in, only had access to general use data. Um, and in that included like 25 Intel reports uh, that Dragos would make available to their customers. Outside of that, Dragos said they didn't get anything. Now, obviously, the hacker group is saying something totally different. Um, and I want to believe Dragos here. And the reason I want to believe them is because, one, they know that if this group got anything, they're going to extort them. It's going to come out. So just be honest right off the bat. And they know this being a cybersecurity company. So according to the, the, the beautiful report, and you can find the link in the show notes, there were 16 hours that this uh, hacking group had access to this employee account. They tried to access multiple systems, but couldn't. Uh, that's like their messaging systems, their IT help desk, their financial systems, their RFP system, request for proposal, uh, employee recognition system, uh, and marketing system. And the great thing is this, that uh, Drago said, look, this is just due to the fact that we have role-based access control rules. And that stopped this role from having access to any of that information outside of maybe some trivial stuff. Like, look, in a company, do I have access to an IT help desk system? Yeah. Do I have access to do anything bad or look at other people's tickets? No, I don't. And that's where rule-based access comes in. It just gives you what you need, nothing else. Um, the company also said that they were um, able to stop based on the rules they had in place, not that there was an active thing. They, they stopped this group from moving lateral across the network, escalating their privileges, uh, establishing any kind of persistent access, or even making changes to the infrastructure. Once again, this salesperson shouldn't have any access to be able to do any of that stuff. So their tools in place did what they should have done. Now, what I love about this is at the 11 hour mark after they gained access to this account, they sent an extortion email. And it took five more hours from the time that email was sent before someone actually read it because it was just sent outside of business hours. So from hours 11 to 16, uh, they're probably sitting there going, why are these people getting back to us? Uh, and that was just because it was sent outside of the business hours. So no one was looking at their email. They were doing whatever they do with their families or maybe they were sleeping. Who knows what the difference is? Um, but they, they just didn't respond because it wasn't normal business hours. Now, five minutes after someone of uh, senior leadership actually read the extortion message, they disabled the compromised user's accounts, they revoked all active sessions, and they blocked any IOCs they saw in their environment to keep them from gaining any level of persistence or being able to re-backdoor themselves into the network. So I love that, yeah, there was five hours where no one read the email, but Im almost immediately, and I will call five minutes in, in, in an incident response uh, standpoint as immediate. Um, because if you've ever been in incident response, there's a lot of people, they have a lot of opinions, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of data, and sometimes you can get held up by 
the amount of data that is out there to make a decision and data paralysis. Um, but they, they were like, all right, let's get this done. And it's and great. Disable everything, pull them out. And well, then, you know, the, the hackers changed their tactic. They went to extort people uh, and they publicly disclosed incidents to their uh, breach website. They sent messages uh, via public contacts and personal emails to Dragos executives, any of the senior employees they could find, and their family members. All of this, once again, to put that extra humph onto the company to negotiate with them. And I like the fact that Dragos took their time, understood what the breach is, how they did, came up with a, like a nifty little chart. And we're able to confidently say, look, they didn't really get anything of any real value. So we will not negotiate with you. Uh, and that takes away all the power from the hackers. Uh, obviously, the systems in place gave them that advantage. And this really should be something that, you know, every company out there should be looking to, you know, kind of mimic. Because it's one of those things where You know, all the right choices they had made up until that moment, the security tools they put in place, the security people they trusted, whatever you want to look at in that scenario, they did everything right to keep the hacker from having any long-term advantage in their system so that when they wanted to make a quick decision, they could do that. I can't say that for every uh, organization that has a cyber incident. Because if you're not sure that you can shut them out of your systems, then you have to pause when you're going to try to get them out of your system. Because you don't know what tripwires they may have placed. You don't know what uh, backdoors they may have, you know, engineered in the time it took for you to find this. But this whole incident, about 16 hours, a little over 16 hours. And there was a confidence into how they were going to respond. Now, I wish I could find more information on, like, did they drill this through? Was this something that, you know, they were able to do because they had practiced this? Uh, or did they just have the right decision makers in the room at that time? Because that's part of the 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 difficulties of, a, of dealing with an instant response. Is having the right people in the room to make the right decisions and feel comfortable making those decisions in a quick time frame. As I said, you don't know when you make the decision to cut off access what the next step is going to be. They could have things in your systems. You could deal with it that way. You could try to play whack-a-mole in your system. There are a lot of different ways. Uh, but they had the tools and they had the, the talent to just make that decision. And maybe they didn't know everything, but they gambled with it and they won. I, and I would like to believe a security company probably has this as part of their standard operating procedures. They were ready for this. Um, but as I said, the, the, the thing that I love about this, and, I, and this will be the last thing I say because we're, we're almost at the 12-minute mark on the first story, is that they took this and they used it as a teaching lesson for cybersecurity experts everywhere. And I really encourage you that if you are in cybersecurity or if you have an interest in cybersecurity, you go to the show notes for this cybersecuritynewsbite.com, go to this episode 57, 
look at their website, their blog article, and they go through the steps. And I think that is a way to publicly deal with an incident. We know it happened. The news is out there. They could have pretended and not shared any of this information like so many companies do. They took it and they said, hey, look, here's a learning experience for everyone out there. And I think that's something we don't see often or really ever in, in a security breach like this. Um, once again, they were, they were confident they could do this, but the fact that they shared with it, they came up and said, Hey, here's what happened. That's, that's the important part because that, you know what, that brings up the conversation, uh, that I've heard a lot of security professionals have in this last week, which is how do we deal with the onboarding? You know, we, 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 if you want to believe in zero trust, which we all in security people hear a thousand times a day, you have to kind of approach a onboarding that person's personal email account as possibly already being breached. You don't trust it by default. Uh, and a lot of our processes, we do trust that. We look, it, you know, I've been in a lot of companies. It's always been a trust thing. So it's, it's interesting to kind of have that thought now and have that discussion openly from security professionals. Is that the right way to go forward? Can we throw in something along the, the new hire process that could check to make sure the person filling out that account information is the person they say they are? And I think that's a good conversation to have. I think you should have that in your organization. If you want to do zero trust, that's what it is. You don't trust anything. You, you assume everything is constantly breached. And I know security professionals always have you know, leaned on that. I've leaned on it when I talk to people. You know, It's not if, it's when. Uh, but really take that into, into account. Like, Just assume everything is compromised all the time and then put your security controls in that way. You know, I don't trust your email. I don't trust your personal account because you could be compromised. And then we move from there. For our second story this week, and once again, another great story to talk about, kind of more in the ethereal realm of security, uh, is an application called Darkbird. And when I first heard about this, I, I, I didn't know what to make of it, honestly. And this happens to deal with the uh, Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, along with the data intelligence company S2W. And they were leveraging um, a natural language processing uh, application, uh, also known as LP. This, this, these are all the smart AI things that write stuff for you. They learn language. And in the security space, I have more recently over and over again, uh, come into, you know, AI is everything in security. You know, it, it's being pitched on at every level every level and this is one of the interesting places where it's going but it's not quite there yet so darkbert is um trained extensively on reading english uh but not just regular stuff it's been fed about 6.1 million pages found on the dark web and the researchers kind of fed it important things and kind of left out some meaningless or irrelevant pages. 
that don't have a lot of information. This is specifically for threat intelligence on the dark web is what they trained uh, trained it for. And then they compared Darkbert to kind of two other popular natural language processing applications. One being BERT, a masked language model introduced by Google back in 2018, and Roberta, um, an AI approach developed by Facebook in 2019. And I'm not going to bury the lead here. It, it did okay. But this is really the first uh, version of this. So they used it for uh, three different use cases. They wanted to they wanted to try Dark Bert, Bert, and Roberta in this, these scenarios and see how well it does. So one of the first use cases they did was a ransomware leak site detection, meaning uh, if your company gets gets ransomware, then the one that goes on a leak site where they, you know, if you don't pay up, they they leak your data. So the three language models were tasked with identifying and classifying such sites. Just the site, not the data on the site yet. Just say, find a site, tell me if it's ransomware, uh, and <clears throat> if it is um, going to leak that data. And Darkbert, obviously, because it was trained better, outperformed the other two. And it demonstrated its advantage in understanding the language of underground hacking forums on the dark web. Which, honestly, once it, it, it shouldn't be a huge surprise, but it, it was trained on the dark web. So it does good. It does better than the regular language models on finding stuff on ransomware things. Um, they wanted to do a, any noteworthy threat detection. So a, a, a threat of um, bulletin board system that might have information that could be used for threat detection purposes. And one, and this is something very difficult even for people, for humans to do. Um, so the task is, is pretty hard. Uh, Darkbert... Uh, for real-world, noteworthy threat detection is not as good compared to those previous evaluations and tasks, meaning the ransomware and the one we haven't talked about yet, which was the threat keyword inference. But the performance of Darkbert over the other two language models uh, show potential in finding information on the dark web and, and, and bringing it up to someone's attention. Uh, so the hope there, and the researchers have said, look, we just need to train it with more samples, incorporate additional features like author information, and, and they can they think they can tweak it to be a little better. Now, for the third use case that they, they were testing on it, which is threat keyword inference, uh, researchers used the fill mask function to identify keywords linked to, in this trial case, threats and drug sales on the dark web. Once again, Darkbird's results in this particular test were better than those of other tested variants. Once again, this is, I mean, not should not be surprising, mostly because it was trained on the dark web. It understands and speaks like people on the dark web do. Um, so it does better than, than just the baseline. Uh, but I'm not saying this is not something we should be amazed about because this is this is this is Gen 1. And it just needs time to be able to really pull that information out and really target where it needs to go and tweak things. Uh, I think this is really a great thing for anyone in the threat intelligence field because this will make scanning the dark web easier. And if you've ever done threat intelligence on the dark web, you have to know the places. And the problem is, we've talked about this in the show before, if those, those uh, forums get shut down, 
for whatever reasons, law enforcement takes them down. It takes a while to find the new ones, find where this information is, find the threads that you need to find. It's not easy to do. And if a bot can kind of even give you a 50-50 shot at finding like, hey, this might be useful, I'm willing to take that because I think that leads to better threat intelligence. And, you know, this uh, dark bird shows some promise. And it shows where the future research in the dark web could go with AI. And obviously, just like every AI out there, there needs to be more work, some fine tuning. But I think this is something that I'm looking forward to five years down the line. I think this is something very excited. And I just can't wait to how this could help battle uh, the bad stuff that's on the dark web. Now for our third story, uh, one other one that's very interesting um, because, you know, in security, we've said like, look, you don't do the, 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 the factor codes. We got something, something a little more tougher than a text message to you. And one of those things that some companies do is fingerprints. Well, there's a new attack called brute print, which is a vulnerability which allows some people to brute force fingerprint uh, sensors on your phone. And this was brought to us by Tencent Labs and uh, Zhejiang University. I'm probably butchering that horribly. I apologize. Uh, but researchers have presented a new attack, which they call brute print which brute forces fingerprints on modern smartphones. And it bypasses user authentication, can take control of the advice, the device, because it thinks it's your, your finger. Um, so this is a very interesting attack, but once again, this is at the university level right now. There are not uh, proof of concepts uh, that are out there, but kind of once information's out, it won't take long before some malicious hacker somewhere then makes it a uh, POC uh to then start putting attacks on. Now, the brute force attack relies on, um, in, I should say, a brute force attack, for those of you not aware, uh, relies on kind of trial and error system where you just keep throwing passwords at a system until eventually you get it. Very simple. Kind of the same thing uh, is what goes on with this brute print. Um, but it overcomes the safeguards on the, on the, on the uh, on, on your phone. Um, so if you try to ever, you know, open your phone after a shower or something and it doesn't recognize your finger, you kind of um, lock it out after a certain period of time. Like after three or four times, it locks and makes you wait before you can try it again. Um, but they've found some zero-day vulnerabilities right now, which overcomes the attempt limits of how many times you can try and the liveliness detection, meaning it has to be you know, a live finger along those lines. Uh, and these zero-day vulnerabilities they call uh, cancel after match fail, C-A-M-F, and match after lock. These two vulnerabilities are what lets this happen right now. And this is the fingerprint sensor, serial peripheral interface, SPI, um, are, well, they have a flaw, which doesn't allow it to be protected against these brute force kind of attacks. It allows for a man-in-the-middle attack to hijack fingerprint images and brute print an SMI or SPI's man-in-the-middle attack where it tested against 10 popular smartphones. And 
what is scary is that on Android and Harmony OS, which is the Hawaii devices, unlimited attempts to do this. You could just sit there and throw fingerprints all along. On iOS device, you may, your, your first thought, because mine was, was, ah, it's not going to work on that. Apple's a little more rigid, but they got 10 extra attempts on iOS devices. So uh, iOS devices are not impervious to this kind of attack. So how does this work? So obviously the attacker needs physical access to your phone, meaning they have to have your phone for this to work. They need access to a fingerprint database. And they can get this from uh, some academic data sets that are out there for testing or biometric data leaks, uh, leaks that are out there, just like every other kind of data leak that is out there. And they need about $15 worth of equipment. And what happens is the fingerprint matches. Uh, so when you put your fingerprint on your sensor, it's not a specific value like a password where A is always A. There's kind of a fudge factor just due to human nature of your fingers. Uh, so there is a threshold that it will allow there. And the cancel after match fail injects a error into the fingerprint data to stop the authentication process prematurely. So when you put your finger to it, this uh, CAMF process will fail out before it gets to the protection system on your device to count it. So pretty much when it scans a fingerprint, it does not count towards the lockout methodology. So it's unlimited attempts there. Like you can just keep trying fingerprints and it's going to keep failing before it registers that it failed, if that makes sense. And as I said, this allows an attacker to pretty much just throw fingerprints at it to get it as best it can. Now, the other one I talked about, the match after lock fail, enables the attacker to kind of get the information of authentication results from the fingerprint images so that it can more closely match that fingerprint fudge factor to get it to unlock the device. And that's even after lockout mode is enabled. So hypothetically, this is a very interesting kind of attack that could be very dangerous if it wasn't in that uh, kind of test phase. Now, the security expert in me kind of looks at things this way. Um, is this neat? Is this a great way to break into things if you have the phone? Is this a great way to, to bypass those security measures if you have the phone? Yes. Not hugely risky for your average person. Uh, and kind of as a security expert, if you have access to, to any system, well, then you just assume it's compromised because you have physical access to it. It's, it's, a, it's the most base access you can get to stuff. Um, but as I said, look for this to come around eventually, probably at shady phone dealers. Uh, you don't have to worry about it in your day-to-day -day life, but it is, it's very interesting to see how the fingerprint uh, can be tricked. And not just tricked, but tricked forever. Even, even the ability for it to, you know, stop after a certain amount of failed attempts. So very interesting stuff. And, and, and I'll keep it on and we'll keep talking about it if, if there's any more that comes out of this. But um, be careful if you're on Android or a Harmony OS from Hawaii. Because your phone could be brute force with fingerprints. Apple, you just get 10 more so.
I don't know if that's good or bad. And for our final story this week is something that I've been ringing the bells about for a while, and now it's starting to become more and more of an interest for those on the dark web. And that is technology we've probably all seen one level or another, which is uh, voice cloning. The ability to take a subset of dialogue or recordings you have of a person and being able to spin that into making him say whatever you want him to say. And there's some really great technology out there that's doing that. Uh, people are using it for audiobooks. There's a lot of stuff you can use it for. Uh, the problem is, is now, you know, the bad people are starting to have a, a huge interest in this. Uh, and they're hoping to use this as a streamline to, you know, defraud people by using really good deep fakes. It's done exactly like your boss or your CEO or someone you're expecting to hear. And uh, part of this was found in a uh, recorded future um, report called I Have No Mouth and I Must Do Crime, uh, which uh, threat intelligence uh, analysts uh, from recorded future uh, start to notice the chatter of cyber criminals about getting this deep fake audio technology and they can mimic the voice of a target. And there, there are plenty of people out there who have some language or some dialogue out there on the internet that people can use like me, your host. I, I've done now 57 episodes, countless hours of just me talking. And I'm sure it, there's enough out there that someone was, could be able to deep fake my voice. And the point of this is that they can use it to kind of spread mis or disinformation enhance the effectiveness of social engineering because you get an email, you go, oh, I'm not sure about this, but then your boss calls. And even use it in business email compromises. So this is, I, I find a legitimate account, a business you may do business with. I take over that account. I use that person's uh, voice to call you up and sell the fact that they want you to do this action even more so. And there are now uh, ads on the dark web for out-of-the-box voice cloning platforms. And while on the clear net, on the internet that you're familiar with, uh, they can be expensive. Dark web, not so much. And in fact, some of them are free where you can just, you just have to register an account. And some are a little more than $5 a month. And they will now start to be utilized in these kind of scams. Especially now with ChatGBT. So if English is not your first language, you feed it to, through, through to ChatGBT. ChatGBT comes up with a, with a English or American English sounding uh, dialogue. You throw it through this voice um, as a service, voice cloning as a service tool, VCAS. And then you make it happen. It just sells the scams so much better. Now, the thing here, and, and, and I want to say the the cloning of anyone's voice, that's a technology thing that's happening. We can't stop that. Uh, the thing that we're going to start telling people as security people and start, start evangelizing it now, which is not just that my voice is talking to you, but is it talking to you in the manner that I would talk to you? And I say that because you can make my voice say whatever you want. I'm sure there's someone who could throw together a quick thing from all the audio I have as training material 
and make a really convincing me saying me things. But if you know me, there's a certain way in which I talk to people. Uh, there's a certain cadence in my voice. There is a certain irreverence to the way I talk sometimes uh, or the randomness of things that pop into my head uh, that my voice might say things, but you may go, well, that doesn't really sound like Jim. Like it sounds like Jim, but it doesn't, it's, it, it's like body snatchers, Jim. And that's what I think as security professionals, we're going to need to start telling people in the future to watch out for, because that's what it's going to be. The voice can fool you, but does it embody the person you, you're expecting this to sound like? Now with business email compromises, you may not have a good enough relationship with that. Uh, 10 to 1 though, you might get my, yeah, yeah. let's say you have one, have one of my employees uh, get a call from fake Jim. Would it fool them? And, and that's a question is if they're not thinking about it and they're not putting a lot of, you know, is this embodied Jim? Then, then yeah, I, I think it might get away with it. I'm not going to pretend like this is going to be easy because I'm sure as the technology gets better, even my weird way of talking or, or my idiosyncrasies and the way I speak could be copied. So just be on the lookout that this technology is now out there. The genie is out of the bottle and this is something we're going to have to deal with. And, you know, just like every other security thing that's new out there, we're going to have to figure out our best way to try to defeat it. But, you know, I don't know if, you know, there will be an easy way of doing that at first. A lot of people are going to fall for it. And just prepare. That's all I can tell you. Just prepare. Uh, because this is stuff that people in the dark web, the criminals, the hackers, the state-sponsored actors, they're all planning this to come to a, a conversation to you soon enough. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't forget, you can find the show notes for this show, as well as all my other shows, uh, at cybersecuritynewsbyte.com. The episode has the links to get you the articles in which I base the show off of, uh, as well as the notes that I use to kind of guide me in telling you the important parts of it. Uh, you can also uh, find more information out about me at jimguckin.com, or you can reach out to me and we can have a talk. Uh, me, Emmy, at jimguckin.com. Just make sure that you stay safe online. And we'll talk again next week. You've been listening to the Cybersecurity News Byte with Jim Guckin. Learn more about our show at cybersecuritynewsbyte.com.